everybody, welcome back to Community Possibilities. I am so um, happy and humbled to have Cassie Ray with me today. Uh, Cassie is the founder of Serve and Connect, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, so we were introduced by our mutual friend, Susan Wolf, and she is one of my business besties as well as one of my besties. Uh, so I'm really grateful for Susan uh, for suggesting you come on the show. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, um, the three of us have something in common. We're all community psychologists. We'll talk about that in a second. But I want I wanted to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to my audience. Uh, so as you shared, I'm Cassie Alia Ray, and I am the founder and CEO of an organization called Serve and Connect. And Serve and Connect, we're a nonprofit that's based in South Carolina. And we have the mission of fostering positive change through sustainable police and community partnerships. Really what we envision is a future where police and citizens are working together as one community to address root causes of crime and promote safety so that everyone can thrive. We really push back on this idea of us versus them. Uh, we believe at the end of the day, what police and citizens want is more the same than it is different, that we want our communities to be safe, our families to be protected and our children to thrive. And through Serve and Connect, we offer the support, the tools, the programming that helps build that bridge that enables police and citizen partners to work together effectively to tackle significant community issues and create a better future for everyone. And it's an organization that I founded after my husband, Greg Alia, who was a police officer, was shot and killed in the line of duty in, on September 30th of 2015. So this is not what you had planned on doing with your life, I imagine, when you were in graduate no. school and a young mom. What did, what did you think you were going to do before Greg's death? Yeah, so at the time of Greg's death, I uh, was working on completing my doctorate in clinical community psychology at the University of South Carolina, and I absolutely loved the work that I was doing. I was very thankful uh, to be mentored by Dr. Abe Wandersman, and I was working closely with him on a number of different projects. Uh, so at the time, we had been working uh, with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, uh, leading the formative evaluation for a national community health capacity building initiative called uh, SCALE. I also had the opportunity to work with him uh, as we supported the CDC and helping to build readiness for translating a tobacco policy into practice. I uh, also had the opportunity over the years to work with some smaller projects, uh, such as with Dr. Darcy Friedman, who's now at Case Western, supported her in uh, starting a farmer's market in Orangeburg, South Carolina. So you know, my heart and soul was with community, always. Really loved uh, implementation science, use of empowerment evaluation. But the heart and soul of everything that I did was really this deep passion for uh, the power of people to drive change in the, the world around them. Um, lots of passion and love for constructs such as collective efficacy, sense of community, just enamored with the idea of the power of people to come together to make change happen. And at the time, um, a lot of my passion focused on health inequities uh, and health disparities, community health. 
so, you know, it's, it's crazy that all of those experiences, I believe, really perfectly positioned me to respond in the way that I did after Greg's death because public safety, public health are so aligned and really the violence that we're seeing is a public health crisis. So it's not such a far jump. I just uh, had no, um, could never have imagined that the future that uh, that was in store for me um, and how all of those experiences have led me to be able to uh, respond in the way that I have and hopefully find a way to bring people together. You know, when I've listened to your uh, TED talk at least three times now, and it gets me every time, I got to tell you, because uh, years ago when my little ones were little, we lost uh, a couple of friends that were really close to us. I had a good friend of mine that um, died in a plane crash. He was taking uh, mm. Christmas boxes as part of a, a Christmas fundraiser and died unexpectedly, mm. leaving his wife with two small children. And then my um, my good friend, uh, Sarah, died unexpectedly as she was out in the middle of the night um, getting medicine for her child. Um and she had a, a heart issue that no one knew about. So mm. when I heard your story, my heart went back there because that was so difficult for, for us, certainly, but for our friends who lost their spouse and who were left to raise this child. And of course, that wasn't a violent situation, but I it, it, it does relate in the fact you wake up in the morning, yeah. you, you kiss your spouse goodbye, your partner goodbye, and you, you don't know that 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 phone call is going to happen. So in your TED talk, you talk about, you know, kind of how you picked yourself up and made the decision to move forward. And I I wonder if you could talk about that transition a little bit, because this this podcast really is all about um, people who are in communities doing something very positive, because it would be just as easy for you to crawl in the box, right, and not do what you're doing. First, let me just share my love for you and your friends' families. Uh, while it may, I don't know how many years it's been, it sounds like it may have been a while, I know firsthand that, that grief never goes away. It, it just takes different shapes and forms, but it's always present. So my heart is with you and uh, all of those who continue to miss the friends left behind. And um, I really appreciate your your love and your words. Um, I wish I could say there was some like superpower skill, but you know, I, I really believe that we're all a whole lot stronger than we give ourselves credit for. I feel like the reality is that death is a part of life. None of us can escape it. It's it will impact each and every one of us, um, both personally uh, for ourselves, but also if we are people in community who love, we will lose people that we love. Mm -hmm. And something that I feel so strongly is we have done ourselves as a society such a disservice in the way that we respond to grief and loss. Uh, For as commonplace as it is, uh, we don't talk about it. And what that does, I think, is make our experience of pain so uh, isolated and insular. And that, that hurts us even more because it's such a, 
an opportunity for us to come together and recognize our shared humanity and in that there's healing. And um, I, I really believe that that is something that so significantly got me through. Um, you know, I, I'll never forget it was, so my husband was killed on September 30th of 2015 and his funeral was October 3rd. Um, people outside of South Carolina may not remember this, but it was national news. Uh, there was a thousand year flood that hit Columbia, South Carolina, where I live. And that rain began the day of Greg's funeral. So I'll never forget. Uh, they're like snapshots in my mind, you know, hazy pictures, but some things are so clear. And I remember driving up to the church and walking past just rows and rows of officers in salute and just the rain coming down on their uniforms. And I remember driving away from the cemetery and uh, looking in the rearview mirror and uh, just seeing this line of blue light, sea of blue light just was pouring down rain. At the time, I didn't process what was happening. You know, my brain just couldn't process so much. And I remember snippets of people talking about that evening uh, as we remembered and Greg and celebrated his life, just murmurs of, we got to get out of here. The rain's coming. This is really serious. And I just couldn't process it. It was kind of bizarre. You know, our area in Forest Acres was one of the hardest hit areas for the flood, but it was like I was on this little island that seemed to be protected. And I remember, uh, you know, a few days later, it was just so surreal. I was sitting on my front lawn uh, with my son, Sal, who had turned six months old the day that Greg was killed. And the sun was shining. It looked like nothing had happened, but yet I knew that there was so much destruction in the community around me and in my own heart. You know, how could I be sitting here with the sun shining, with this beautiful moment with my son, when it felt like the world was just destroyed, at least my world um, and my community. And I just couldn't stay home any longer. And I went uh, to... Actually, I, I got in the car and I started calling around and I said, who needs help? I need to help. And ooh, I haven't talked about this one in a while. Um, and I first showed up at a local high school and I was helping to load in cases of water because, you know, our, our systems were destroyed and you couldn't, you couldn't drink tap water. And um, then I heard word that the local food bank needed help. Um, and so I became the dessert lady at the food bank, helping to just load and um, categorize the, the, all the dessert food, the fun food. And what that did for my heart to step outside of my own grief and pain and recognize that I wasn't alone, um, that there were so many people who were hurting and, um, and I could try to help. You know, I don't know what a big impact that made helping with those food boxes, but I'm thankful um, to have had the opportunity to help. And it helped my heart. It helped me see, uh, really step outside of myself because, you know, we're told like this grief, we're in this little tiny box and it's this black box and we just are allowed to be sad in our little box. And that's what we're told is the norm. But really when we're able to step outside of that box and see how, uh, how connected we are in our, in our healing and our sadness. It really helps to normalize the situation and see that there's hope that we can move forward and we can heal. 
And I'm thankful too, it seems that that experience had ripple effects on others. Uh, The news caught wind that I was there. And to this day, I have people comment on what that meant. And I, I guess the whole message is that for us to be able to move forward, you know, we think that the healing takes place in the confines of our bedrooms as we cry, but really it's when we lean lean in, reach out and connect with others um, that the greatest healing. And that's really what has gotten me through these past nearly seven years. Um, so that, that would be my only reflection. I think the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, like I said, I, I can just Im- imagine, and I, and I know people who um, kind of, they, they take that grief and they wrap it around them and they, they lock it up and they hold it. And it's, it's a testimony to you and your strength that you were able to open up your heart and, and do this amazing thing that you have done, which is this organization. And, and I want to talk about that. Uh, and I, and we can go in whatever direction you want to go. Cause the other thing that I was curious about in the, in the Ted talk is you talked about, I think maybe it was the first time that you talked about this in a public forum and you were kind of confronted by a couple. And what's interesting to me about that is this was, seven years ago now, or I, I think that talk was about that same time or not, six not too years. far. Yeah. yeah. So six years mm-hmm. after, and here we are in 2022 and we think about, um, the protests in the street and, uh, the, the protests certainly against, uh, police violence. I mean, you were in the fray before, before, the last couple of years before it really, really got intense. And yet you were confronted. And I wonder to the, to the extent you feel comfortable sharing, can you talk about that? Because I think it does speak to how we can learn to lean into that and lean into those conversations that are difficult because we can't seem to do that. That's one of the reasons why I even started the podcast. Like, oh my gosh, we can't even talk to each other anymore. So I don't know, I'm kind of rambling, but I think you get the point. Absolutely. Well, and and first, let me just commend you also for taking action. Uh, Last night I was on a panel uh, with South Carolina Educational TV on gun reform. And uh, the other panelists and I, a common thread was, you know, just reflecting on the need to take action, but what action looks like can be so different. We have this image in our mind, and I think the quickest image is that of protest, but there are so many different ways to take action, and you holding this space is a beautiful action to take, So, and I'm thankful to be a part of it. I do, before I answer your question, just want to go back to something that you said um, in the experience of grief, and I guess my whole point in talking about it is I think that I am not some superhuman. What I think is that our norms around grief have really uh, handicapped us from being able to have that post-traumatic growth. And so that's something why I think it's so important to speak out about is um, I think there are times, so uh, we may get into this, but I, I did remarry almost four years ago. And when I first started dating my new husband, people were like, but what about Greg? And now when I talk about Greg, that I'm remarried, people are like, what about Mitch? And it's like, to me, I have two husbands, one's in heaven and one's on earth. And my husband just recently adopted our son and Sal has two dads, one in heaven and one on earth. And that's a, a reality for our family. And by not embracing the healing and transformation that can happen in grief, uh, I just, I want to speak out about that because I, 
I think that some people may feel unsafe to uh, heal and find joy. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's so important. So mm-hmm. it is not to discount anyone else's, but I hope that those words can serve as a space of mm-hmm. safety for people to feel confident and empowerment. But anyway, um, to your point, yes. So Greg was killed in September and nearly immediately I felt called to start taking action. Uh, actually, Within hours, I started speaking out, uh, talking about Greg, sharing our story with different media outlets, uh, different legislators, leaders throughout the community, with the intention of really focusing on Greg as a person. I think far too often we forget that there are real people behind the stories we hear in the news, and I wanted to create that humanized that he was a person. He was loved. He was a dad. He was a husband and uh, bring that human element. But very early on, like I, I felt called to keep doing more and more. I just wasn't quite sure what that more was. Um, and so it was that summer of 2016 and that summer of 2016, you're right, but the past few years have been very heightened since the killing of George Floyd. But really, this modern social justice movement began back in 2014, really after Ferguson, um, the death of Michael Brown. And that summer of 2016 was a very, very intense time as well, because uh, there was the shooting of the Dallas police officers and several very high profile um, shootings of unarmed black men by police officers. And it was a very intense summer as well. And uh, locally, people were really just starting to try to do something about it, create spaces to talk. And I was invited to speak on this panel on race relations. And so to me at the time, I was thinking, you know, if I have the opportunity to share my voice, hopefully I, that can be a part of driving change. If I can be heard, then hopefully people will better understand. And it didn't go as planned. There was a couple in attendance. Uh, it was a couple there with the, the grandma and um, their teenage daughter. And they expressed a lot of pain and anger at me. Um, and I was distraught. You know, this was brand new to me. I came into this, I thought, with the best of intentions, with an open heart and, and an open mind. And I was distraught. I was like, what did I say that upset them so much? And it was so bad that afterwards, the panel staff uh, tried to escort me down a private hallway as if to shield me, to protect me from this couple. But I swung back around and I found them. And we talked, I think, like an hour and a half. Wow. And I don't remember everything that they said from that conversation. But what I remember is really what I learned is that First and foremost, I had so much more that I had to learn when it came to understanding why people distrust police so much. Um, And I really learned what it felt like to lean into this difficult conversation and from there uh, be able to come to a a sort of a common ground and understanding with this couple that had a lot of hatred towards me. And at the end, here we are like hugging as we leave goodbye. And I also just in that moment really recognized that if I really wanted to be effective at bringing people together, 
that I had to do a lot more listening and a lot less talking. That change was so much more about seeking to understand than being understood. And I think that's a a big misconception that we have, um, especially in the divisive culture that we live in. We so badly want people to understand our perspective. And that's what causes so much of this rift, this conflict is we're going into these conversations with our stake in the ground and our stake in the ground is there for a reason. Most of the time it's because we believe that stake is what is protecting the people we love from pain, from death, from violence. And so we put that stake in the ground and we come guns blazing, ready to change people's minds to help them understand why we feel that way, what our pain looks like. But then that just shuts in the other teams coming the same way. And so we're having conversations. They're not really conversations. We're just talking at one another, getting ready to respond. Mm-hmm. But if we really want to have real change, we have to do the exact opposite. We have to be courageous enough to let our guard down, to be vulnerable, and to come in ready to listen. And when we do that, what happens is beautiful. We see that we are all human beings worthy of dignity and compassion and respect. And we may not always agree with one another. But we're able to imagine what it may feel like to be that person and understand that human experience. And from that, see that there is no us versus them, that we, at the end of the day, want the same things for our communities to be safe, our families to be protected, and our children to thrive. And we can better work together to make that happen. Well, that was actually where I wanted to go next. And you kind of, I think, answered that question is, you know, how do we see um, that other perspective? Because you know, I, I imagine, I don't know if I were you and in that situation, I think I would have, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think I would do what you did and turn around and say, no, 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 no. I need, I, I need to go find that couple. And I want to, I want to understand, right. It, It would be so much easier just to walk out that door and feel like, well, golly gee, I was just misunderstood. And that was terrible. Maybe that was even, you know, unkind or, unjust or whatever, whatever the word. And I hear so many people say, well, I just hate conflict. Right. I've said that myself. Right. And I think those of us who uh, look a certain way um, have that out clause, right. Because we can say, I, I don't like conflict and I'm not going to play. And other folks who don't look like us don't, don't always have that option. Um, So I think you just gave us great advice. I don't know how we, um, I don't know how we, learn or to put that into practice and, and, and teach our brothers and sisters how to do that. I, I don't know. I think we need to spend more time doing that. Well, I think we got to take baby steps too. We're not going to go from zero to 10. And I think that's another mm-hmm. big misconception as well is that people are like, okay, I'm ready to be like courageous. And I am just going to go up to a person of color on the street and I'm going to ask them about racism. But no, no, no. Nope, nope, that's not how we begin. We don't enter into conversations like that, or they're like, we are going to like bring people together. We're going to have the hard conversation. If you don't have a relationship in the first place, it's hard to have those hard conversations. If this is brand new to you, you got to build your empathy muscle. It's like mm-hmm. anything, it takes practice, it takes mm-hmm. skill. And start that one step at a time. I think volunteering is a great way to begin involved. Start interacting with people who are different. Start giving back, seeing different populations. Look at your social circles. Are all your friends generally the same? 
Do they look the same? Do they have the same cultural beliefs, same religious beliefs? Are they engaging in the same activities? One of the best um, pieces of advice I ever got. So as our organization was growing um, and I was learning more and more about nonprofit management, as I shared with you before this podcast began, and um, I'm trained as an academic. Uh, I did some consulting work. But uh, learning nonprofit management and business management has been a very steep curve. And so as I started learning more about this world, uh, board diversity is a big topic. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to uh, one of my mentors who is a man of color, and he I was in one of his leadership training programs, and he was talking about the need for diversity on boards. And I was like, well, I agree, but I don't want to ask the wrong person. I don't want it to be a token person. I want it to be the right fit for our mission. And he was like, I hear you, Cassie. But I guess the question you need to ask yourself is why is it so hard to find the right person? And I was like, Whoo! mind blown. You're absolutely right. When I take a hard look at my social circles, they're a little homogenous. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the hard work was on me to, and and it's not like you can all of a sudden decide that you're just going to go be friend to someone who's different from you. It takes intentionality and time and consistency and authenticity to build those relationships. Mm-hmm. So I think the first step if someone's making the decision to lean into this space is to say, okay, I've made this decision. Step one, let me look at, let me take a hard look at myself in the mirror mm-hmm. and maybe I can start uh, reaching out to different festivals or I can start reading different books, or I can expose myself to different movies, or maybe I pop into different religious services. And there are different ways that you can try to diversify and uh, build that um, empathy muscle. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I know my um, friends of color are kind of pretty exhausted of being asked all the things. So you're right. It's time that we all took a good, long, hard look at ourselves and start with ourselves. I like that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about um, Serve and Connect and all the great work that you are doing. I was just uh, looking at your website this morning. Uh, We were talking about that before I hit record. You guys are growing and I serve on a nonprofit board. I feel your pain. So tell us all (laughs) about the great things that you all do. Oh my gosh. It's just so humbling to see the growth. In, in such a short period of time. And I have to say, Anne, none of that would have been possible. It's only possible because of our amazing partners who have brought us here. Serving Connect is truly an organization of connections. We're not a direct service provider. So the work that we've done is really led by and inspired by our many diverse police, citizen, social service partners. And Uh, So we have a number of different programs that are uh, in place right now. So one of them is a program called Greg's Groceries. Uh, It provides boxes of non-perishable food to police. So when they come across someone experiencing hunger, they're able to help. Greg's Groceries, importantly, though, is not just about the box of food. Yes, the box of food matters. Um, Police are the front lines, people in crisis. Uh, They come across people every day that are in some of their worst moments, and often a unifying uh, need is hunger. And so uh, that is an important tool. If someone's experiencing hunger, um, 
the very important need to be met. But more importantly than that, it is a, a tool that helps bridge that conversation, open the door for officers to talk to citizens in need. There was one officer told a story, um, Officer Joe Chaladko at the um, Columbia Police Department. And he uh, came across a woman who was uh, parked in the median. And when he, he came up to her, she wouldn't look at him, but he could tell that it seemed she had been in some sort of domestic issue. And uh, he noticed that there were groceries on the side of her car. Uh, so he went back to his car, grabbed a couple boxes of Greg's groceries. And he said when he brought them to her, it was the first time she had smiled in that entire interaction. And because of that, she then opened up, started telling him that she was fleeing an abusive situation. Uh, she didn't know what to do with her kids. She didn't know what to do with these groceries that were spoiling extra. She had nowhere to go. And because of that box of food, he was able to open door for conversation and get her more help. And that's what it's about. It's building those bridges, bringing people together. We hear far too often that police are, uh, they want to help, but they can be reluctant to ask that hard question if they don't feel confident that they can meet the need. So by having the box of food, it at least says, at least I have this. You know, at least I can have that conversation. Um, in a bigger way, what I'm so thrilled about is how it is creating a network throughout South Carolina where police officers who are dedicated to community policing, to agencies that are committed to it, are connecting with one another. So they are able to say it's not just one officer, it's not just one department, but it's a unified voice uh, calling for for a different future and a different path forward. And um, that's something I'm so inspired by. And it's had so many ripple effects to stimulating new and creative ways that police uh, can work better with their communities to make a difference. I'm also proud of our Compass work. So it's called Compass because it really shows how we find our shared direction when we work together. It's where we work with police and citizen leaders to develop locally driven movements where they're tackling the greatest challenges faced in their neighborhoods. Uh, so really you can think about Compass like almost a how-to for community policing. Uh, community policing is a term that has been around for a long time, but it's tossed around and very frequently misunderstood. So there are people who think that it's just about handing out stickers or ice cream cones. Um, it's not really deep enough or meaningful enough. There are agencies which think it's just about having coffee with a cop. And don't, mm -hmm. coffee with a cop is, it's fine. It's just standalone. That's not community policing. It could be part of a comprehensive community policing package, but standalone. It's not, it's not the end all be all. Um, and then there are some who think that it's not tough enough on crime, that it's soft, squishy policing. Mm -hmm. But really, community policing, if you look at the actual definition, is about partnerships that help address root causes of crime and promote shared problem solving. Community policing, as it's intended to be, recognizes that police are just a spoke on the public safety wheel. They alone cannot make communities safer. They need engaged uh, social service organizations, faith-based institutions, educational systems, municipal governments, very importantly, residents themselves working together to promote public safety. Uh, that makes sense, I think, when you hear it, but knowing tangibly how to implement that, especially in a world where we are all expected to do more with way less, is hard. And so Compass is really provide 
that framework to help police and community partners work more effectively together. Um, and so those are two, you know, we have a ton of other spin-off different uh, opportunities that have emerged through that. Uh, but those are two of our really foundational programs. Mm-hmm. And you have, um, I don't know, I can't remember the term that you use to describe them, but your staff members who are based in the community, is that the work that they're doing then? Is is the, the yes? Yes, yeah. So the staff that are based in community um, are more of our Compass team members mm-hmm. uh, because it is very important that uh, making change is one of the most critical tools is consistency and showing up. Mm-hmm. And it's not a nine to five. Community meetings don't happen on your schedule. Trauma doesn't happen on your schedule. Um, building trust doesn't happen on your schedule. There are times if you think you're going to put on your calendar a half an hour meeting, you better be prepared for that to go to two or three hours when it talks about really trying to build some of the the fractured trust that exists. And um, so it's very important that's necessary to be located within that community to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I like what you said about, you know, um, uh, being in the community, not just for, you know, that meeting, but really for the long haul. Right. Because these communities are pretty exhausted of being uh, researched or people coming in saying they want to help. So that's really important. When people are exhausted overall, I mean, especially following the pandemic, I think just exhaustion, fatigue, and hopelessness are at an all time high. And so that's something that we try to come in and do is bring people together. We, we really describe ourselves like a mirror. You know, the answers to change exist within communities, but we provide settings, opportunities that allow people to shine in their best way to to get that spark of hope. And from that, it's the ripple effects that are some of the most powerful. It's just, we just get that engine started. Mm-hmm. So what's next uh, for you, for your organization? Do you have other things that you plan to implement? Are you, oh, no, thank you. I've got enough on my plate right now. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're always, we're always dreaming. I think my, my team really hopes that my answer to this is no, we're just going to say no. My team's awesome. They love to dream as well. Um, so we are launching um, our ambassador program. So through Greg's Groceries, we have identified police officers who have shown a really strong commitment to Greg's Groceries and Community Policing, and we want to further amplify their tools to be able to make a difference um, and also connect them together. Uh, So we will be having their first summit and training in September, and already it's been so cool. We inducted them in our gala a few months back, and uh, some of them have already been, two of them that are in different parts of the state talk weekly now, and they bounce ideas back and forth, and so I'm really excited to see how they grow this work um, because we really believe in being led by our partners. And so that's going to be really exciting. Um, We are also starting to explore what it might look like for us to go outside of South Carolina. So we have some irons in the fire that we're starting to test out, uh, but want to make sure when we do that, you know, I'm a community psychologist by training, implementation science, we want to make sure what does it take to make that happen in an effective way. So we're starting to explore that process. 
We're also in the process of developing a community policing portal. Um, so that will make it possible for police departments to be able to track community engagement activities, which is so critical. We measure what matters. We reinforce what matters. We give promotions based on what mat what we measure. Um, and for all the talk about how important partnerships are, we uh, really don't measure them at all. And that's really important as well because, you know, this idea like there's a push and pull among different opinions on whether or not community policing is actually effective and effective for what. But the reality is it's hard for us to say that definitively because we have such little evidence um, helping us. It's very under-researched. And so my hope is that this portal will also help stimulate a field of research for mm -hmm. this area. So always, always the idea, but right now I'm really committed to my team and my partners as well and making sure that they have all the support that they need to shine. Well, I was wondering as you were talking and you went exactly where I was going to, because I was gonna like, oh, I wonder if they're going to expand to other states. And because, you know, when you're when you've got something good and so important, it's just natural that other people are going to want to be attracted to that. And of course, I love what, when you're talking about like measuring uh, what matters because we're both community psychologists. I'm an evaluator. That's what I do. You know, and so many no nonprofits either um, are afraid of evaluation or they know it's important, but they don't know how to get started or they don't want to take money from services. But you know, how do we know what we're doing is really working? We need to be able to make that argument that we're certainly, um, you know, not doing harm to a community that, you know, we want to, we want to do what's effective. So I was really glad that you, um, mentioned that, of course. So that, that brings us, so we, we, uh, we both outed ourselves. We're both community psychologists. And I had this on the list to talk about, uh, cause in your Ted talk, and I was so surprised when you mentioned this, I just had to chuckle the first time I heard you talk about the article in praise of paradox by Julian Rappaport. He okay, actually right. spoke at a student conference when I was in graduate school years and years ago. Um, uh, very handsome man, by the way, I think all the, all of us ladies <laughs> like, whoa. um, and I reread that article this morning, and I was curious as to what resonated with you most of all in that article, because so much of now what you do, I can see in that article. I will never forget. So uh, a little bit of background with me. Uh, I initially wanted to get into graduate school. I thought that I was going to be more of a clinical uh, health researcher. Yeah, working more with like families um, around like obesity, health promotion. And so that's initially um, why I entered our program. Um, honestly, how I got into a clinical community PhD program with how limited knowledge I knew of community psychology is a little bit questionable. But I remember my first semester, I took uh, community psychology with Brett Kluf. So any community psychologist listening will should know that name. But it was like just a light went off for me and I was so excited every day, just pouring over, learning more and more about community psychology. And I'll never forget when we read that article, just, it was like so many like light bulbs, you know, those moments where those light bulbs go off. And it spoke to me so much in that I had already felt, but didn't have the words to make tangible that, uh, it, we don't have to be divided, you know, and in fact, like being able to embrace paradoxical perspectives 
is what helps us make change happen. You know, that there is not just one truth, that in our world, there are many truths that we need to hold and be able to wrestle with. Our world, people are very complex. Communities are very complex. There is no one size fits all answer. And in fact, there is some middle ground throughout all of them. And I think earlier when you were talking about leaning into those hard conversations, I mean, something that I've said a lot to our partners is, like, did you get in this to be right? Or did you get in this to make a difference? Oh, I may steal that line. (laughs) (laughs) And if it's about making a difference, then we need to understand the many different perspectives to be able to find that common ground and a path forward. And that's really, I think, over the years, what has spoken to me so much about in praise of paradox. And I think in the past few years, we've really forgotten that need, um, Mm -hmm. both as a profession, but as a society as a whole. Yeah. I mean, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, that's exactly what the article is all about is like when we go to our separate corners and fail to see the other side, that's when so much damage happens. And the article kind of takes you through different kinds of things. So uh, community mental health and uh, education and busing and, you know, all the, all the things. So I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. So I know we're coming to the end of our time, but I wanted to squeeze this in if we can, because I think you also mentioned this uh, into your TED talk, which I will also share. And maybe we touched on it a little bit, but maybe we, uh, this is a great place to kind of wrap up is how do we find that courage to collaborate? Like I said, you're in a really difficult space. I mean, you are not in a, an easy space for a nonprofit to be. How, how, how do we all find that courage to, to do what you did when you found that couple and to have those community conversations where communities are really hurting and distrustful. And I think about uh, Greg and what a wonderful officer he was, or our friend, Susan, whose son is an officer, right? How, how do you, how do you have that courage to collaborate? And, and by you, I mean, the, 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 yeah, we, the collective you, us, yes, absolutely. I was chuckling. It is such a hard space. You know, there are people I hear it on like that on one side, we'll say we only care about police and on another side, say we only care about communities. And it's like, this is exactly why we exist. <laughs> and, uh, it's a, <laughs> to be it's a that bridge. Road. Um, and when I hear that, I'm like, Oh, if you only knew, like when someone says something, I'm like, if you only knew, like just how I'm, how um how reflective it is that you're saying that. But I think that one of the most important tools is to remember what's, what's our goal? What are we working Mm -hmm. towards? And for me, my why, uh, yes, of course, the work that I'm doing is inspired by Greg and honoring his legacy And yes, it's motivated by the pain that I directly felt and wanting others not to feel that pain. But more than anything, my why is my son, Sal. Sal was six months old the day that Greg was killed. And, you know, he could grow into a lot of hate and distrust and anger. And I don't want that for him. I want him 
to know that people are good. Yes, sometimes people make bad decisions, but people are good. And I want him to feel safe to love and to trust others. And I want him to have just such a, a beautiful future, whatever that looks like for him. And so when I think about my why, I want to create a better world for my son. And so if we keep at the forefront, what is our why? Why are we entering this? Why are we entering into it with fear and pain and anger? It's be, by and large, some people have some agendas. The bulk of that middle, that normal curve is they're doing it because they want to protect the people they love. And so I think the courage comes from recognizing that if you really want to protect the people you love, the way you have to do that is by leaning in. So actually you are being courageous and you are protecting your loved one when you take this step. And I think never forgetting that is one of the most important things. But another thing that I'll follow that up with is offer yourself grace. I am not, I'm a very imperfect person. And you ask my husband, he will tell you there are times when he, I could have entered things with a little bit more empathy, you know, we're not perfect people. We make mistakes. Mm -hmm. We learn and we fail forward and we grow. And so I think as you're entering into this, both personally and also interacting with other people, and especially following the past few years that we've had, we all need to offer each other a hell of a lot of grace. And I think that's very, very important as well as we take steps forward together and supporting each other from moving up the rungs of the ladder for healing and change. Amen. So let me ask you the question I ask everybody. So when you look to the future, what community possibilities do you see? You know, I, what I'm so excited about right now is again, these ripples, you know, this, this idea, this little seed that started in my heart and to see how it is being taken and transformed in the most beautiful ways by so many people. I think that's really what I see. You know, we can't at Serving Connect be in every community. We can't, it's just not possible. But we are specifically designed to inspire more change. We do that by making an impact with our partners because I believe that data and storytelling can inspire others. But if we're effective, we will see those ripples. And there have been times, you know, well, people have come and reached out and said, you know, I want to start something like what you've done in my place. And my, my reaction is not a place of defensiveness or feeling like I need to like, they can't take my idea. Mm-hmm. My response is like, well, that's awesome. Like, isn't that what I'm designed to do mm-hmm. is to help inspire more change and to help that shine. So I don't know tangibly, like structurally what that looks like, but um, I think if we're effective, we're going to see just that tipping point where more and more people believe that there's another way. It doesn't have to be us versus them, that together we are better. And uh, we'll be seeing more of that type of name, language and narrative uh, be occurring throughout our country. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing um, your story. I'm so grateful for Susan for the introduction. And um, if I'm ever in Columbia, I'm going to look you up. You're not that far you better. from me. You better. Come on. We got some great food here. <laughs> yes, you do. And you have a great zoo there in Columbia, too. You have a, yes. you have a nice little zoo. I mean, zoo. we're no food like Atlanta, but, you know, we got our things. Yeah. So. 
It's, it's all good. So how can people get in touch with you, learn more about uh, Serve and Connect? I'm sure you're going to get um, some connections after this. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, so you can go to our website, serveandconnect.org. When you go contact us, that comes to me, so I'll see it. Um, you can follow us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And uh, just reach out. You can email me directly. It's K-A-S-S-Y at serveandconnect.org. Great. And I will put all those links in the show notes. So I know you have an interview because you're growing. So I'm going to let you go. But I want to thank you so much for uh, spending the time with me today. Thank you so much, Anne. It's my pleasure. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. If you liked what you heard, would you be so kind to like and share this episode? I would appreciate it so much. I also wanted to let you know I've been doing some updating on our resources page. So if you go on over to communityevaluationsolutions.com forward slash resources, you're going to, of course, see the link to the podcast. You'll also see a link to our free mini course, Use Data to Help Tell Your Story. You're going to see powerful evidence, our framework for harnessing social change, and you're also going to see a new tool that we're rolling out, the Nonprofit Evaluation Capacity Self-Assessment. It's something I developed years ago, and now I'm making it more widely available. So I hope you will go on over to communityevaluationsolutions.com forward slash resources and check out some of our free tools. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you here next time.